Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. In today's world, meat often gets a bad rap. But this week, we talk to three people who find great beauty in the art of the butcher, the finger-licking taste of barbecue, and even the usefulness of wild hogs. First, Chef Matt Moore chats about his latest cookbook, Butcher on the Block, which is not only chock full of more than 100 recipes, but also offers a butchering primer for at-home cooks, as well as a personal introduction to the butchers behind the recipes. Next, pitmaster Ryan Mitchell talks about the nearly forgotten craft of whole hog barbecue and his family's barbecue legacy as documented in his book, Ed Mitchell Barbecue, which also features some award-winning recipes. Finally, Julie Grunewald joins us to explain how local sportsmen are using wild game to feed those in need through a program called Hunter's for the hungry. So grab your fork and knife and make sure there's plenty of napkins handy because meat is what's for dinner on this week's Louisiana Eats. Chef Matt Moore's affiliation with the craft of butchery began with his grandfather, a World War II veteran who ran a butcher shop in the southern Georgia town of Valdosta. In his fifth and latest cookbook, Butcher on the Block, Matt explains the history and value of butchering by introducing readers to butchers from across the U.S., Europe, and even his own neighborhood supermarket. He also offers step-by-step -step instructions for those who would like to enhance their home butchering skills and explains why the modern butcher shop is one of the most exciting places to be these days in his estimation. My name is Matt Moore and I am author of Butcher on the Block. Matt, I am so happy to meet you because I loved your book. It actually reminded me of what we say about Louisiana Eats, which is that it's not really a show so much about food. It's about people. And that's how you begin your book, by explaining that it's not really about butchering. It's about butchers. This is my fifth cookbook, Butcher on the Block, and uh, my previous books really started a format um, with a book called The South's Best Butts. It was a chance for us to travel the barbecue belt and an opportunity for me to work with uh, Southern Living, which uh, you know put out two of my books and just such an iconic brand 
where we went on the road and we started to tell other people's stories. And it gave me the opportunity to kind of sharpen my skills of, of storytelling and kind of creating these slice of life vignettes. But it was also a challenge to be able to pull out the secrets and techniques of the recipes that we would feature in the book. Um, so South's Best Butts was really focused on the art of low and slow cooking and barbecue. Um, I always joke around that I cannot write a cookbook without going to uh, this, the, the great state of Louisiana. And uh, in that book, we went to uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, where we um, met the team at, at Johnson's Buccaneer, which is just such a fantastic place, and, and spent some time with, with the family there. Um, ultimately, my follow-up book was Serial Griller. And that was focused on all the goodness that happens hot and fast, live fire grilling. Uh, again, we found our, ourselves at Margie's Grill in New Orleans as we you know, featured their story. And so when it came time to write Butcher on the Block, I wanted to continue to follow the format of storytelling of introducing people to these rich characters that I meet throughout my travel. I wanted to expand the horizon beyond just the United States, but also pick up some of the influence that we uh, had that I found in my own life abroad. And I also still wanted to incorporate the ideas of barbecue and grilling. And I, I guess it was a little bit serendipitous in the sense that my grandfather, a World War II veteran, um, was a butcher himself. And he ran a family store after the war in Valdosta, Georgia. And generationally, he was part of a, a generation of, of family butchers that ultimately uh, stopped with his son, who became a banker, uh, which I think is such a, a great, a great story. And so for me to be able to pick up, you know, what's essentially been in my blood and honor my grandfather, but also pay homage to what I think is a great resurgence that we're seeing here in the United States is people want to know more about the source of their food, the quality of their food, the utility of what they can find. I think it's a really useful book for the right now, and it really encourages you to foster community with your local butcher too. Well, your grandfather was just truly the definition of a great American because he was an immigrant and he got that whole family dynasty of butchering and stores started with just a gas station and a fruit stand, huh? Yeah. So my, my great, great grandfather came over from, from Beirut. Um, and at that time, you know, uh, the Middle East was, was largely Catholic and, and French influence. So he had gone to uh, France and ultimately decided to come to the United States uh, through Ellis Island, where he changed the, the last name from Nazrella to Dennis, uh, because as I was told, it was the man in front of him. It sounded more Americanized at that time. And he spent some time in Tennessee, eventually made his way down to South Georgia, um, had a son named Sam, who was my great-great-grandfather, uh, who ultimately had Abraham, who is uh, what we call our, our Jitti, uh, and my grandfather. And so he was the first um, first generation born on American soil. And he really took this idea of the family food store to the new next level, um, especially after the war, along with his brother, of kind of creating what I would say is the, the template for the modern day supermarket of being able to have all the food and the butchering in-house. Um, and it's a lovely story. And, and by the time I came along, the store had had sold. So it was really incredible to revisit a lot of the folks that still live in Valdosta, Georgia, that remember the the kindness and the expertise of my grandfather and how our family served that community so well. Well, butchering is certainly an art, and between your family heritage and everything you've been researching, I know you have some very astute observations about how butchering has changed over the years since the days of your grandfather. So, yet, 
it, it seems to me that it's almost like everything old is new again. So would you kind of draw me a picture of where we came from and where we are now and how we got there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like art kind of repeats itself. I think, you know, in the beginning, uh, people used to travel and, and find themselves in certain towns. And one of the things they would look for is not a great school system. Uh, they would look for a good butcher. And that became a very important way of life. And it's it's something that you see that's passed down generationally, uh, like the Rim family that we found in Cambridge City, Indiana, that's you know going on their fourth generation of, of, of butchers in that community. Um, ultimately, I think as you started to see in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s, modern conveniences started to take over. It wasn't just what you would find um, at the butcher shop, but you would start to see this kind of amalgamation of what became the modern day supermarket, the idea that you could have a strawberry in January because it was trucked in from Mexico. Um, and so I think we lost a little bit of eating locally, eating in season due to just the fact of modern technology allowing us to be able to source. And, you know, uh, my my wife's uh, great uncle was also a butcher. And ultimately, um, as he moved from kind of the artisanal butcher shops to the A&P grocery stores, now we're in a place where uh, you go to a Kroger, which we feature Tommy Kelly in my book, and, and he doesn't cut meat all day. You know, he he's there to talk about it. He's there to guide people. Uh, but the actual trade has kind of somewhat disappeared. And I think it was important for me to showcase how that's kind of coming full circle again. You see a lot of folks that are bringing back that artisanal whole animal style butchering. Um, they want to be able to celebrate the farms that are local. They want to be able to celebrate and pay homage to uh, certain cuts that might be regional or, or, or parts of certain cuisine, as well as offer varieties of food that you can pick up or also to go or dine in to where I kind of think the butcher shop is one of the more exciting places. It's part restaurant, it's part shop, it's part to go. Um, it's a really unique kind of a European old world style that we're seeing uh, come back here in the United States. Well, it fascinates me that you have two children. You've got two little girls, Vivian and Everly. And um, I venture to say that in many years past, they never would have had a hope of being a butcher. But um, with butchers on both sides, anything could happen with your girls. Yeah, um, and I think that's part of the hallmark of every book I, I write. There really is a common theme. Um, you know, I think the kitchen is a place that we can export uh, one of the South's greatest qualities, which is our generosity and our hospitality. And so these books that I write, really, there's a an underlying message that I want people to open their front door, invite over friends and family, but maybe importantly, most importantly, uh, to have over friends, strangers, neighbors, people that don't look like us, people that think differently than us. And, you know, when we talk about the butcher, I was really proud to showcase the diversity of, of people that we feature, men, women, it doesn't matter your beliefs, your race, your cuisine, your creed, your culture. Um, this is an art form that is practiced in all the above. And for me to be able to go out and capture the landscape of where we sit today in a book, it was really, really important for me to introduce uh, my audience and readers to what I call kind of a, a, a cast of characters within the um, the butchering family. Well, it's charming, and it gave us such an international look at butchering right here in America. And I loved 
is a very modern book, too, because I think the concept of vegetable butchery is a little bit of a new thing. I don't think people would have opened this book and expected to find that category included. Why was that important? You know, vegetable butchering, it sounds a little bit tongue-in-cheek at first, but we did uh, visit with Cara Mangini, who was really New York's um, first vegetable butcher at their famous Eataly kind of emporium. And when you really think about it, if I'm going to be approaching maybe a stir fry or a a grilled cabbage steak, um, these are particular items that require a certain amount of butchering to set me up for success. And so Kara's mission, she's actually not a a vegetarian or a vegan at all. Her mission is just to make vegetables more of the center of the plate. And so within this book, as we introduce, you know, people from all over the world, different types of cuisines, um, I didn't want to be bound just to meat and game. So we bring in additional concepts like vegetable butchering. You know, the old idea of fishmongering would kind of be the the term that would cover seafood. But we travel to Boston, um, the famous Boston Harbor, and we meet with Red's Best that are, are, are sustainably sourcing seafood from throughout those local waters. And I think for most folks at home, I want them to view Butcher on the Block as a catch-all cookbook. You're going to find grilling and barbecue, but you're also going to find raw, roasted, fried. You're going to find starters, mains, and appetizers. You're even going to find an Alaskan ice cream as a dessert. So it's a book that I really wanted to have on every you know kitchen shelf. I have to say that until I looked between the pages of your book, and it's obviously a superstar item for you because it's there right in the beginning, you hit us with the beef hammer. <laughs> now, explain that beef hammer. So the beef hammer, uh, or Thor's hammer, as they say, uh, it's really a, a cut that I kind of came to learn Uh, through a lot of my travels in Europe, specifically my friends in Germany who love barbecue and grilling. And so the the hammer, they call it the Hesse, if you will, is a very popular cut uh, in European barbecue. You don't really often see it here in the United States. We often see it uh, as asobuco. So it's going to be the shank, uh, but oftentimes it's it's cut into smaller, you know, two to three inch portions. It's braised for a long time, and it's typically served in kind of a ragu or pasta dish. But instead, you can actually ask the butcher to give you the entire shank. Um, the, the reason it gets the, the hammer name is oftentimes they will French or clean the end of the bone, almost as if you were to pick it up like a large mallet. And then we apply um, the basics of good barbecue. Time and temperature will equal great results. And so it's a, it's a fatty, uh, sinewy kind of muscle that needs that time and low temperature to slowly break down. So we smoke it. We sort of kind of end up finishing it somewhat in a braise, and we approach it almost like a a, a beef brisket or a shoulder clod or, or kind of your favorite Sunday roast. And so I, I think it's a not only is it a stunning cut uh, to start off the book, um, it's something that I picked up from across the pond. And we we approach it in a very kind of American Southern way uh, with with the barbecue method and serve it on some white bread, some sliced onion and pickles, and I'm in heaven. So let's talk a little bit about going in to see your butcher and maybe if you've got some favorite insider meat cuts that only folks in the butchery world might know. You know, I think for me, the, the butcher shop, is as a place to foster community. And it's a place, 
in my life, I'm going on a daily basis, sometimes a couple times a day. You know, I'll see you in a few hours, right? You know, I have no idea what else I'm going to need. But you have that daily interaction. And remember, the butcher's in business too, right? Their job is to provide you not only a great cut, but maybe uh, advice and, and even sometimes a recipe as well to set you up for success. So I would say kind of, you know, we, we've talked about vegetables and seafood, but sort of the gateway drug for me of the local butcher is typically going to be whatever's fresh ground that day, right? So that ground, we'll use ground beef. Oftentimes they may be taking the trimmings and, and cuts from dry aged, very expensive cuts and incorporating that into whatever their house grind might be. And so you're getting a lot of quality, a lot of value. If you've never made just a good old hamburger and a cast iron skillet with fresh ground meat from your butcher, you haven't lived. And so that's a very approachable item that you can start with. Of course, I also think that a lot of butcher shops are known not only for their dry aging techniques, but for the local sausages that they make. You know, an andouille sausage that I'm going to find throughout Louisiana, it might be different than a bratwurst that I'm going to find in the Midwest or an Asian-style sausage in San Francisco. You see a lot of those specialties that are made in-house, including my grandfather, who would make kind of a, a merguez or a Lebanese style in, in Valdosta, Georgia. And for the folks that pick up my book, you know, I, I want them to sit down on a, on a Saturday morning with a good cup of coffee and be able to travel to these places. I want them not only to, to learn about the history or the person, but also to kind of feel what it's like to be there, the, the sights, the smells. Uh, I do my best to tell you all about the taste, but I also give you a recipe so you can pull it off at home. Well, this has just been a fascinating conversation. And Matt, whatever you do, don't come back to New Orleans without calling me. Let's go have <laughs> something good to eat. Sounds like heaven. Can't wait. Thank you. Thank you. That was Chef Matt Moore, author of the cookbook, Butcher on the Block. Coming up next, we speak with another son of the South, pitmaster Ryan Mitchell, who demystifies the art of whole hog barbecue and his family's barbecue legacy. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, 
Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Ryan Mitchell grew up in Wilson, North Carolina, where barbecue was a way of life. In fact, it's his family's legacy. Their story began in the late 1800s with his great-grandfather, whose work was in the Carolina tobacco fields, but whose passions were his family and good barbecue. That passion was passed down through generations, and today, Ryan and his father, Ed, are both renowned pitmasters who specialize in the almost forgotten art of whole hog barbecue. Their methods center on traditions handed down from their ancestors, only use well-raised animals, and only season with sugar-free sauces and rubs made from real whole foods. The family story, along with their recipes, has been recorded in the book Ed Mitchell's Barbecue, written by Ryan and his dad. And the family's line of sugar-free sauces and rubs, aptly named True Made Foods, can be found on grocery shelves across the country. Welcome to Louisiana Eats, Ryan, and I'm honored and thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you. Your great-grandfather, I believe, was born on a farm, and he spent his life as a sharecropper. Yeah, yeah, he did. My great grandfather, who is, uh, he just so happens to be the first name in the uh, dedication uh, paragraph of the of the of the book on the first page. Um, you know, he was born uh, in the late 1870s, um, right off of the plantation. Um, you know, and he went on to uh, father 35 children, 36 children actually, and uh, and the most impressive part about that is just only two wives. So, <laughs> Woo! yeah, the first wife had 16 and unfortunately she passed away. And then his next wife had 20. And from that second wife, uh, my amazing grandmother, Doretha Mitchell was born. Uh, and that is my father's mother. And that is my grandmother. Uh, and from that, from that clan came, uh, the, uh, Ed Mitchell, Doretha Mitchell and Willie Mitchell group family. And, uh, here we are here almost. God, 150 years later, you know, still celebrating barbecue and trying to continue a family legacy. It's incredible to come from such incredibly hardworking, wonderful folks, isn't it? It is. It is. It was. It was a blessing. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, you understand the value of hard work, and you understand, you know, as a as a young man from, you know, from my generation, you you understood what to complain about and what you could not complain about, you know, because you had so many references of um, family family members and people who went through a completely different level of, you know, work and humility. 
Although the Mitchell family had a long barbecue tradition, that delicious pork wasn't shared with the public until Ryan's grandfather, Willie, and his wife, Dorothea, bought a small grocery after a lifetime of working for other people. He bought that corner store, that supermarket with his retirement, <laughs> with his retirement check. Their latter days were going to be geared towards just trying to leave their kids something. That's really all it was about. And my grandfather was just hell-bent on just, you know, having some moment in his life where he can, you know, have some say over his financial destiny, have some say over what his day looked like, have some say over the type of, uh, you know, psychological or mental abuse that he was not going to put up with, you know, through all of those years of working you know, in those environments that weren't favorable for him, for the both of them. The goal was, you know, there wasn't some elaborate business plan to get rich and, and, and like build a, rest, a supermarket or barbecue empire. They literally just wanted to have a something to hand down to their kids. If it, if it wasn't anything but just a mindset that, hey, you could, even if it's in your last days, you know, you can kind of uh, shoot for this. And so the next generation can kind of have something of a roadmap, you know. So the neighborhood gravitated towards that, and it was it was uh, beautiful. Well, I am very enchanted by the tale of your dad. You know, at the age of 45, he was working with the Ford Motor Company when your grandpa died. And... And yet, because I guess of that strong sense of family, your dad felt like he had to come home to take care of his mama. You know, those roots and those and those family ties will bring you home from from all over the place, all over the country, all over the world. You know, and you know, my dad he'd already been gone long enough uh, uh, through Vietnam, and so when he came back, he graduated, he did what everybody. At that time, said he was supposed to do and what everybody felt. And um, and so, but when my grandfather got sick, you know, once it once it came down to it and he wasn't, you know, only had a, a limited amount of time to be alive, you know, he just kind of, you know, quote, unquote, not just move back home, but to be back home and to kind of be a presence. Um, you know, it was just a very, uh, you know, emotional time, you know, trying to replace not just a breadwinner with my grandfather, but the you know, the emotional stability. And that's when a tradition became a business. Ed had made barbecue for his mother, and as the family sat down to their evening meal, someone rattled the doorknob. It turned out to be a customer who heard the grocery was selling barbecue, and he wanted some. Now, about 30 minutes prior to that, there was a gentleman who came in before we closed, and he just was getting some juices and some bread or whatever. And there was some barbecue sitting on the counter. And my grandmother had given him a sandwich because he saw it. And he goes off into the neighborhood, you know, telling the the houses behind us that we were selling barbecue, which was not the case. <laughs> so and, uh, and my grandmother kind of stands up from like behind the meat counter. And, and uh, she said, well, just, just tell them, you know, we'll have some tomorrow. And my dad is looking like, what? It's like so he just tells the guy through the door, listen man, we'll have some tomorrow. I'll see you later. So the guy leaves and um and lo and behold, you know, the next day turned into 
five people, and then the next day it turns into ten people, and then the next day it turns into twenty, and then we kind of just, you know, and that's just how we how we built our business out, you know, just really from humble beginners. I tell people all the time we got into the business, you know, really from a position of pain, you know, just trying to keep family together and pay some bills. We were not on the competition circuit. We weren't traveling the country, winning awards. We were literally trying to put one foot in front of the other and keep our family together. Tell me uh, your thoughts about pitmasters. Are are they a dying breed? You know, it's a labor of love and it's completely labor intense. You know, it's so hard. Those that are left are doing a great job. So we, um, we committed to just cooking whole hog and whole hog barbecue only. And that's how we, we built a name for ourselves. uh, Just staying committed to the origin of the craft, you know, which is, from our family legacy was, you know, over 100, 200 years old at that time. So when the travelers came around and when Southern Foodways decided to make its circle around the country looking for that style of barbecue, we became, you know, number one on the travel list because they couldn't really find anybody else that was committed to it in that way. It's very telling. I mean, it really opened my eyes reading in the book about the uh, first trip to the Big Apple barbecue block party. And yeah, yeah, so y'all are up there and (laughs) all these other folks, they got sponsors, people are paying for things and y'all financed all that right out of your pockets and made incredible sacrifices to do so. Very much so. I mean, we were taking the mortgage money to pay for gas, taking the light bill money to pay for hotels, you know, it was really, uh, it was nerve wracking, man. I mean, we didn't know anything about, you know, what it meant to do travel cooking. You know, if we can make it to the big stage of New York City, then we possibly can get some help. You know, we can get some, you know, we can raise the bar on how people feel about what we're doing down here. And we can really get, you know, on a stage that will give us some notoriety and some credentials. Uh, we traveled, you know, the first year was just like a couple of hogs and, you know, five pitmasters on 28th Street. You know, by the time we got to year 10, 11, it was 15 pitmasters. We were cooking 18, uh, 16 whole hogs a weekend, uh, and we were serving over 100,000 people. You had a big career, a big corporate career in, in finance, but... But barbecue called you home. So I get off into my career and I was down the path of banking, finance, investment banking. And I had promised, oh, I, I've touched my last hog. I've, I've fried my last pizza, dropped my last basket of fries. No more, you know, frying chicken. And, you know, all those days were over. <laughs> and I get into the middle of my career, uh, you know, eight, nine years into my career. and you know, the, the stock market crash happens and the company that I'm working for now comes in and says, you know, we're going to lay off about 2,000 people and, uh, you know, you're one of them. But Food Network and Bobby Flay and, you know, all of the things that come along with being on TV was, was trickulating at the same time. So I got laid off, but my dad was still, you know, pushing buttons, still still hedging, making a way into uh, the entertainment side of barbecue and, you know, he, I, I went home and I said, Hey man, you know, I think, um, 
I think now's the time we we take this uh, a little bit more serious than what I have been. And he's, you know, sitting there like, yeah, I thought you would see it my way pretty soon, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a big part of your expansion has been um, making sauces and rubs available to everybody. Absolutely. You know, True Made Foods is our our parent company. We developed a line of no-sugar barbecue sauces. You know, we have a couple of almost uh, 6,000 grocery stores around the country who are carrying our products, you know, and it's the way they're by grandmother and my great-grandparents used to do it, um, you know, when barbecue sauce and food was made, you know, without all the additives and all of the preservatives. Well, Ryan, speaking of the legacy, so how, how is your grandmother, Doretha? She, she, she's doing great. You know, she'll be uh, 93 years old this coming November. Have you been with her when she sees the products on the grocery store shelves? The first store that put us on the shelf, uh, I remember I went I went to go pick her up. I remember walking her down the aisle where the condiments were, and I was like, oh, you know, I wonder what they got over here. So I pointed at a shelf. I was like, "You have you ever seen that, that guy before right there on that bottle? <laughs> and uh, she looks, you know, and then she does like a double take, a triple take, and she grabs the bottle. And oh my! And she starts crying right there in the store, right? So, the G, the general manager comes out, you know, thinking that I am causing a ruckus, right? <laughs> so I was like, uh, "No, man!" Uh, and he walks up to her. He was like, "Who's making this sweet, you know, lady cry, whatever, right?" <laughs> and he and she and she says, "No, this is my baby. You know, this is my family. We got our products right here. We got our our sauces." And the guy, he looks, and then he starts crying. Then the manager starts crying with her, you know, right? And he's like, and so he goes back and calls, uh, you know, the the home office, and they do this big story on it, you know, and he ends up thanking me and, you know, and, and, and thanking us. And so they made a big deal out of it, but, you know, that was her moment. There's so much for so many people to learn still about, what barbecue teaches us about race relations in the South? You know, at the core of, of barbecue, right, it's it's all hospitality and, you know, commitment to kind of uh, being of service to each other. At the end of the day, barbecue, food in general, music, you know, those are binding forces no matter what, what race, color, or creed you are. So we want to continue that, man. And barbecue in its origin was just that. Hopefully, barbecue is a way to bring us all closer together. So thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. That was Pitmaster Ryan Mitchell, author of Ed Mitchell Barbecue. is the difference between barbecuing and grilling? Stay tuned and we'll explore exactly that when we come right back. Don't go anywhere.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore. Discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this summer. Experience the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the difference between barbecuing and grilling? The quickest answer to that question is time. Real barbecue, as we learned from Ryan Mitchell, is a very slow affair where meat is cooked long and low. That's a low fire and a long time. That's what you want for pulled pork, succulent fall-off-the-bone ribs, and most of all, that truly smoky flavor embedded deep into the meat. Grilling is what you're most likely doing in your backyard where you grill hamburgers, steaks, and chicken. That's where you get those telltale grill marks the French call quadrillage. The effect achieved on the grill involves the Maillard reaction, wherein the searing heat causes a chemical reaction between amino acids, proteins, and sugars, resulting in a crisp caramelization that just tastes good. That's also what makes toasted bread extra delicious. Now, for the record, many chefs eschew grill marks, as honestly, they are more for show than anything else. One thing is certain, though. Whether you're grilling or smoking up some barbecue in your backyard, it always makes for some good Louisiana Eats. Because of the vast natural resources available to hunters and fishermen in our state, Louisiana is deservedly known as Sportsman's Paradise. After all, even our car's license plates proudly proclaim that fact. We sat down with Julie Grunwald to learn all about how local sportsmen are putting our natural resources to use, feeding those in need of a good meal. 
My name is Julie Grinwald, and I am the Executive Director of Hunters for the Hungry, Louisiana. Julie, Hunters for the Hungry, what a great concept. It all began in Baton Rouge, didn't it? Well, actually, it began with our chairman and her husband, uh, who were on a hunting trip in another state, and she picked up a local newspaper and read about a similar program that they had um, out west, and she said, oh my goodness, why don't we have this in Louisiana? We live in sportsman's paradise. This has got to happen. And that was in 1994. So uh, that's that was a while back and it is still going and growing today. Wow, that's a, that is a long time for this program to have been in existence. And it is such an important project because you all are making a difference ecologically, agriculturally, and feeding the hungry because hogs in particular, those wild hogs cost $76 million in agricultural losses a year. Yeah, they've been a real nuisance problem for a long time. And there's a lot of people that are trying to obviously uh, figure out kind of how to get get them uh, under wraps, so to speak. But, you know, in the meantime, what we're trying to promote is that there are a lot of them out there. So let's put them to good use and have them turned into one of our partner processors throughout the state. And they'll process the meat for us. And then we can give it to the food bank because, you know, it's great protein um, and it's a great source of lean protein once it's, you know, prepared properly. And so we're taking that opportunity and putting it to good use. And of course, one of the great things for hunters is that there is no season. Absolutely. And the other good thing is that there's no cost to the hunter. So they just have to get it to one of the processors and then Hunters for the Hungry will pay all of the processing fees. Tell me about some of your partner processors, where they're located and, uh, and how that works. Yeah, so we're really, um, we have over 50 that are partnered with us currently. And honestly, as our program gets more awareness and our um, programs are expanding, then we are having processors who are out there that we may not even know about yet reach out to us and say, hey, I heard about your organization. I definitely want to get involved. So we work with all five major food banks throughout the state of Louisiana. And so when they are, the processor is ready for a pickup, um, that local food bank will send one of their agencies that is located in that community to pick up the meat. You all harvested 49,000 pounds of protein that resulted in 196,000 meals. That really is making a dent. It really is. And, you know, protein, as you know, is the most expensive part of every meal. So when we are able to provide this to the food banks and their agencies, it's such a huge help for these, again, their soup kitchens and the, and the shelters that are having to feed so many of the needy throughout the state every single day. So not having to pay for the most expensive part of the meal uh, is certainly very helpful uh, all the way around. And Venice Marina, I understand, actually donated more than 6,000 pounds of fish last year? 
Oh, they've done that twice. So they've actually donated over 12,000 pounds of fish. So, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to, to put that into perspective. But, you know, as far as, you know, ground meat goes, I just always say envision one pound of ground meat that you see in the grocery store or when you're buying, you know, for hamburgers and, you know, times 12,000, you know, or, um, or whatever, 40, 49,000 for the deer meat. Well, it may surprise people to learn that their donations are actually tax deductible. So yes, so there you can, um, especially if you pay for the processing fee of the animal that you turn in, you can write that off as a tax deduction. That is true. What an incredible program altogether. And of course, every fall, right before that deer season starts, you all hold an annual clean out your freezer day. Tell us about that event. Yeah, so, you know, the premise is that right before you're uh, going to start bringing home more um, deer meat from the upcoming deer season is sometimes you think you may uh, eat everything that you brought home from last season, but you have a little bit left over and you need to make room in your freezer. So we ask people to clean out their freezers and donate that meat, uh, whether it be, you know, we get we get everything um, we have drop off locations throughout the state and in the New Orleans area uh, Puglia's um, sporting goods and Metairie is one of our drop off locations and so we have volunteers set up out there where you literally you pull up they'll help you unload your ice chest or whatever you uh, want to donate and then you drive off we keep it super simple. Um, but all of that meat and protein is going to Second Harvest Food Bank and to the New Orleans Mission as well. What incredibly inspirational work that you do. Bravo. How can people learn more about Hunters for the Hungry? You can visit us on our website, which is www.h4h. LA.org. So H4HLA.org. We're also on all social media platforms. So you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all the things and uh, keep up with, you know, our clean out your freezer day, our locations, our processors that you may uh, be in your area. And if you have any questions, you can always reach out to us either through the website or certainly on social media. Julie, before I let you go, I do think that we need to make sure people understand what a menace those wild hogs are. Those hogs are out there rooting in and actually compromising our levee system. For sure. They're doing a lot of damage to all, you know, anybody that's a landowner, not only if you are a farmer um, or if you have hunting property, but you're right. You know, I mean, I spoke to someone um, on Grand Isle the other day and she said Elmer's Island right now is full of them. And so they are, you know, they, they cause so much damage. They dig holes. Um, people, especially um, animals like cattle and that sort of thing, you know, walk through that, they break their ankles, you know, there's that, that, that aspect of it. So they really are everywhere and they really are a huge nuisance. And, you know, if we could just get people to help us again by, you know, trapping them, harvesting them and bringing them into our processing facilities, then at least we're, you know, putting some sort of dent in, uh, in what is out there that is causing so much damage to our state. 
Well, good job all around. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on Louisiana Eats. Thank you very much. That was Julie Grunwald, Executive Director of Louisiana's Hunters for the Hungry. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.